it, Numbers is largely an unknown and unread book to most believers that I talk to, um, mainly because it's hard to get past the census in there and, and the laws, but the stories is going to be our focus in the book of Numbers. And they're, they, they are very rich and riveting and, and profound, in fact. But our prayer as church leadership, especially coming out of COVID, out of a pandemic where pessimism and cynicism is, is running wild and rampant, maybe even in our own hearts sitting here this morning, it's our prayer that, that we would all just take a good hard look in the mirror when it comes to our own complaining. But then see how gracious, patient, persevering, and hope-filled God is. So, before we jump into Numbers 11, I want to try to explain the first 10 chapters, but I found something that does a better job than I do. So, the Bible Project, which is a fantastic resource that we've used often here, it's free, it's online, there's actually a couple different videos on the book of Numbers, so if you want to go check those out, you can for yourself. But they do a, a great overview of this whole book. So I just want to show this to you, um, and then we can get a good grasp of, of where we're headed and what it's all about. So check it out. The book of Numbers gets overlooked, partly because it has a really boring name. Which is a shame. In the Hebrew tradition, the book's name is Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness. And it's an epic travel log about Israel's journey through the desert on their way to the land promised to Abraham. Now, this pilgrimage should only take about two weeks on foot. But instead, it takes them about 40 years. That's crazy. It's practically half of someone's lifetime. Yeah, it's a very long camping trip with lots of interesting stories. But let's remember, it's most helpful to back up and start with how this book is designed. Right. So the book is broken up into five sections. There are three wilderness locations broken up by two road trips that link all the pieces together. The first wilderness section is Mount Sinai, right here on the map. And then in the second section, they travel to a region called Paran. A whole bunch of things happen here in the wilderness of Paran. And then in this fourth section is Israel's road trip to Moab. The book ends with a large section in the wilderness of Moab, right across the Jordan River from the Promised Land. Now. Through all of these sections, the storyline just flows like a gripping, dramatic movie. Everything starts great, but then the trip goes horribly wrong, and it all ends with the final redemptive moment, the surprising act of God's grace. So let's jump into the story. It all begins at the wilderness at Mount Sinai, and we've become really familiar with this mountain. Yeah, if you remember, Israel came here after Egypt, and they formed a covenant with God here, got the Ten Commandments here, built the tabernacle here, and they've been at this mountain for one full year. And now they take a census to number the people as they prepare to leave. Right, and they're given these instructions for how to organize all those people in the camp. God's presence in the tabernacle, and then the tribe of Levi and the priests around it, and then the rest of the tribes around them. And this pattern, it's this visual symbol for how God's holiness is at the center of their existence as a people. And they're told that when the cloud of God's presence moves, they're to pack up and travel with it. Yeah, the Ark of the Covenant is carried by the Levites out in front, and then the tribe of Judah, and on and on. And this order is also a symbol for how God's holy presence is their leader and guide through the wilderness. We begin the second section of the book with enthusiasm as they leave Mount Sinai and travel up to Paran. God's with them, everything's organized. This is gonna be great. But it's not great. After just three days on the road, the people are complaining about their hunger and thirst, and then even Moses' brother and sister start bad-mouthing him in front of all the people. Not a great start. 
But now we're into the third section, the wilderness of Paran. This is where they send the 12 spies to scout out the promised land. Two of those spies come back and they're really optimistic. But the other 10 are freaked out and they don't trust God and they go around saying, we're gonna get annihilated in there. And so they start a mutiny and they try to appoint a new leader who's gonna take all the people back to Egypt. And so basically they are refusing to go into the promised land and God honors their choice. He says that this generation is going to wander for 40 years and die in the wilderness and only their kids will get to enter the promised land. You know, this story here gets brought up many times in the Bible by different authors. Yeah, and, and it always serves as a reminder that while God remains faithful to his people and his promises, he will honor their choices. He'll, he'll let them waste their whole lives if they choose to live in rebellion. Okay, so the trip's been a disaster so far. And it gets worse here in this fourth section as they're traveling to Moab. Even Moses has a moment of rebellion and is disqualified from entering the promised land. Then there's another rebellion among the people. It results in this snake attack. And what makes all these rebellions even worse is that every step of the way, God has been providing. He's been offering forgiveness. He's been giving them food and water and this crazy stuff called manna. Yeah, what is that stuff? Yeah, no, no idea. But in spite of all this, they keep complaining and they say that they wish they had died in slavery in Egypt. If I was God, I would just give up on these guys. You would think. But that's what makes this story in the final section so surprising. Israel has just arrived in Moab, and the king of Moab, he's freaked out that this huge group of people is traveling through his land. So he hires this pagan sorcerer named Balaam to pronounce curses on them. This guy means business. Yeah, and so Balaam, he says, okay, I'm gonna pray to the Hebrew God, and let's see what happens. And three different times, he attempts to curse them, but each time he finds that he can utter only blessing. Most surprising is the last blessing where he prophesies that out of Israel will rise a victorious king. And this king is somehow gonna be connected to God's promise to Abraham to bless all nations through this family. So here's Israel rebelling down in the camp, totally unaware that up in the hills, God is protecting and even blessing them. The book ends here in Moab. Israel's getting ready to go into the promised land. They count up everyone again, just like at the beginning. They're leaving the old generation behind, including Moses. But before they leave Moses, he gives them his last words of warning and wisdom. And that speech is what the next book, Deuteronomy, is all about. Okay, everyone got it? Book of Numbers? All right, there it is. Uh, so what we're going to see and what we actually see before you get to the book of Numbers is God graciously giving and providing, which the video just talked about. So in the book of Exodus, he gives salvation in, in a few different ways. He gives them salvation from slavery in Egypt. They were in slavery 400 years, and God, um, through Moses' leadership, um, ends up freeing them after a bunch of plagues. And then they're also saved from, uh, from the attack of the Egyptians. So they just change their mind. They're like, oh, actually, I don't want to let them go. I, I want my slaves back. So they're chasing after them, and God parts the Red Sea. As many of us know the story, they go across, and the Egyptians get washed up after that by God. And then they get saved from themselves, really. When they're at Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai before they go out in the the desert here in the book of Numbers, um, when they're receiving the law, when they're receiving the Ten Commandments, and they're receiving 
God's presence through building this tabernacle for his holy presence, they end up rebelling against God. If you remember the story where they, they build a, a golden calf and start wor- literally worshiping an idol, um, and God saves them from that, saves them from themselves, and still graciously gives to them salvation, even from themselves. So um, he graciously gives salvation in Exodus. And then we see in Numbers chapter 1 through 4, he graciously gives people we see this, this list, this census that's being taken of all of these people, and we start to see the promise that was promised to Abraham to bless him with, with more people, more descendants than can be numbered by the stars, more than the grains of the sand. And so you start to see that, and that's, that's the significance of this census. You see, oh, wow, God really is blessing this chosen people. And then he blesses them in Numbers 5 through 10 with his presence, See, we, God is holy. Holy means that he is untainted by sin and completely unique from anyone or anything. So when we, when we see that God is holy and he's untainted by sin, it immediately, we immediately see how his presence becomes a difficulty for them to live with. They're sinners, all of them. They didn't deserve God's holy presence, and, and either do we today. But God's preparing them. He gives them these ritual purity laws in chapters 5 through 10 so that they can, they can live with his presence, so they, they can actually enjoy his presence with them and not just die because that is what would happen. Um, so he's preparing them for that. And all of these are good, gracious gifts of God. None of them deserve his salvation. None of them deserve to be his people. And they certainly didn't deserve his presence. Yet, He gave it to them. Of all the people, of all times, he gives it to them. So what would you expect them to do? How would you expect them to respond to his gracious gifts? I would expect them to be obedient and to worship him and to live a life of gratitude. But the exact opposite happens. And that leads us to Numbers 11, verse 1. Look at it with me. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. A lot just happened just in that one line. The people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. So we learn in chapter 10, they're about three days into their journey in the desert with God from Mount Sinai, going to the promised land. Like the Bible Project said, it would only take them two weeks by foot. They're only three days into the journey in the desert God's leading the way with this cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Whenever it would move, they would move with it. And they're complaining about their misfortunes. What are their misfortunes? We don't actually know. The scripture doesn't say what their misfortunes were. What could, what could they possibly be complaining about? We're not sure. Maybe they were fatigued. They're out in a desert. Um, we're not sure, but it, I think it doesn't mention their misfortunes because it's not the point. The point is that they're complaining for no good reason. God has given and given and given to them, and they complain right away. See, they didn't just complain, though. They knew that God heard their complaining, and they did it anyway. It says they complained in the hearing of the Lord. They knew God was present. They knew they were hearing them. It reminds me of like going on a trip with my kids, and you get the movie playing. You give them some snacks. They're all ready to go, and what happens 10 minutes into that trip? They mutter to their, their brother or sister and go, hey, they may not say right to you yet, but they're, they're like, 
man, are we there yet? This trip is the worst. Why, why is this taking so long? I'm hungry, even though they just ate a snack. I mean, they just, they're just complaining, and they know I can hear them, right? But they're just complaining to one another, kind of a, kind of a soft, indirect way to go about it. But this is, this is basically what's happening. They're going, man, this is, this is the worst. They know God can hear them. They're not going straight to God and complaining to him, but yet they knew he heard them, and they're just complaining. It makes no sense, though, but it's such a human response. This, this is us so often. But the end of verse 1, God graciously gives them a warning. He says, and, and when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. He graciously gives them a warning. See, God would have been justifying at this point to just let them have it. They're questioning God's leadership. They're questioning his plan three days into the journey. They're, they're questioning his care for them. I mean, this is serious distrust and disrespect of God. Yet God graciously warns them with just a fire on the outside of the camp. It's like God saying, hey, it, it seems like y'all forgot who I am. Let, re, let me remind you that I am a holy God. But he does it, it seems, just to wake them up, not to harm them, which is really quite gracious. He's like, wake up. You, you, you guys forget who I am, how I've provided for you. Trust me. And so in response, in verse 2, Israel begs. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord. There's no sign of remorse here. In the text, there's no sign of repentance. It's just desperate begging for relief from the fire. There's a fire. New Living Translation says the people screamed to Moses for help. They're just like, make it stop, make it stop. No acknowledgement of their sin, of their complaining, of their grumbling. Just give us relief. This is terrible. And God, again, graciously gives. He gives relief to them. End of verse 2, the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taborah because the fire of the Lord burned among them. See, again, God would have been perfectly justified to just crank up that fire at that point. They didn't even acknowledge their sin of complaining, much less turn away from it and repent. But God graciously gives them relief from the fire. I mean, God truly is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Now you would think they've learned their lesson, right? We've got a fire. God's got us. He's with us. We just need to trust him. We need to trust him. We need to not complain. We need to not grumble. We need to not complain to him or about him with one another. It's all going to be all right. He's been very gracious to us. What do they do? Verse 4. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel wept again. And said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. They grumble again. Verse 4, it says the rabble that was among them. This, this is referring to probably the Egyptians that joined the Israelites. I had never noticed this. So in the story in Exodus, 
when they're delivered from Pharaoh and delivered from slavery, as they're going out, you actually see it in Exodus 12, 38 if you want to look at it, but um, as they're going out, some Egyptians join in with them. Now, we're not sure why. Um, maybe they were just in awe of God. They had just experienced these 10 plagues, and they were like, oh, wow, okay, Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, that's the true God. We're following him. So they wanted to follow him and, and, and go with them, so they did. We're not really sure, but here they are. And they had a different mindset, it seems, than the rest of the Israelites. And it makes sense, though. They weren't in slavery in Egypt. They were probably living normal lives in a rather prosperous nation at the time, Egypt. So it makes sense that they had a strong craving. Where's, where's our fish? Where's our fresh produce? Where's the meat? They're out in the desert. They're not living their cush life in Egypt. So they start stirring up, complaining and grumbling and trouble. And it's a whole new level of complaining here. They're despising God's deliverance from slavery. Now, Israel joins in with this, okay? They join in. They could have said, hey, you, you don't understand how good and gracious God has been to us. Be quiet. Quit that. I know you didn't experience the slavery we did. You don't quite understand, but be quiet. No, instead they join in and weep. Crying out to God, going, what are you doing, God? They're despising God's deliverance from slavery. We'd rather be slaves than not have meat and fresh produce to eat. God doesn't actually care about us. He just brought us out here to suffer and to die. They're despising God's provision. It says at the end here, uh, it says, and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. And then in verse 7, it describes it. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like that of delium. The people went about and gathered it, and ground it in hand mills, or beat it in mortars, and boiled it in pots, and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. God provided them with this, this substance that they used. It seemed to make... Um, Sounds like some good cakes to me. I don't know. Um, it sounds all right. But God's providing this for them in the middle of the desert. He's miraculously providing food for them. And, he's, he, and they turn their back and complain about it. They're complaining about God's good, miraculous gift to them. It reminds me of, of a couple years ago, a few years ago actually, my parents gave Heather and I a vehicle uh, to drive around because we needed another vehicle at that point uh, for that period of time. Now it was, it wasn't a great vehicle. It was on, uh, it was definitely on its last leg, um, but it ran. It went from point A to point B, and of course, it it didn't actually last that long. But um, I I could have said this though. I could have said, God, thank you so much for providing this vehicle for us to drive. But why isn't it a brand new truck? Okay. Come on, God. Why couldn't you have my parents or someone else get us a brand new truck? I didn't do that because I don't actually desire a truck. I know that's not very manly, but whatever. Heather, Heather really wants a truck, but um, I, I don't really want a truck, okay? But imagine if it's this brand new truck, brand new vehicle. I'm just going, God, why didn't you provide that? What are you doing? See, that's what they're doing here. God provided them with food. They had food. Their needs were taken care of yet they're still complaining. 
I mean, leave it to humans. Leave it to us to invent ways to complain about blessings, right? That's what Israel's doing. Even after the fire of the Lord burned at the fringe of the camp, they turn right around and do the same thing and even worse. But not to be outdone, Moses joins in with the grumbling. Verse 10. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight, that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth, that they should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child? to the land that you swore to give your fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once if I find favor in your sight that I may not see my wretchedness. Moses joins in the complaining. Then to verse 10, it says that Moses was displeased. And that would have been fantastic if he was displeased that the people were despising God's good provision. But that's not what he's displeased about. We learn in verses 11 to 15 that he's displeased for much more selfish reasons. He was mad at the people for making his life more difficult as a leader. And he was mad at God for expecting so much from him as a leader. Now, those are certainly valid frustrations for any of us who have been in any sort of leadership of anybody in our lives. We can, we can get that. But there, he's doing the same thing the Israelites were doing. Grumbling, despising God's provision. Moses got so caught up in the drama of what was happening that he says, he says at the end there that he would rather be killed than deal with this. So now you got the Israelites and their, Mo- and their leader Moses, all grumbling. So what is God going to do? Has he had enough? God graciously gives them help. Verse 16, Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. See, God graciously gives Moses real, tangible help with these other leaders. He even puts this special Holy Spirit wisdom and strength on them like he did with Moses. There's only a few people in all of the Old Testament that get the the empowerment of the Holy Spirit for specific tasks and, and these people get it along with Moses. God is very, very gracious. He gives them himself. It's like he's saying, Moses, let me show you and remind you of my provision. Clearly, your perspective has been warped and changed a little bit from being in the trenches with these people. But I haven't changed. I am still here, and I'm going to provide for you. And he didn't have to do that. He could have he given Moses quite the consequence, and he doesn't. But he also graciously gives help to the people, kind of. Verse 31 Then a wind from the Lord sprang up and had brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp. About a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp. 
about two cubits above the ground. That's a lot of, that's a lot of birds there. And the people rose all, the, all that day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. Those who gathered least gathered ten homers and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. God graciously gives the people what they wanted, meat. And he gives it to them in a mass amount. Now it says here, the, the least of them got ten homers. So each person that was gathering got at least a homer is, is about a donkey's load, okay? I don't know how many quails you can fit on a donkey, but imagine we got 10 donkeys up here and there's a bunch of quails on top of them, all right? Um, that's about, that's, it's a lot of birds, all right? That's all we need to know. It's a lot of quail. Um, so they're, they're bringing this in and they're like, oh, wow, this is amazing. But at this point in the story, I'm asking God, what are you doing? I mean, you know, fool me once, shame on you, but fool me twice, shame on me, right? I mean, God, they just keep doing it with no remorse, no repentance. Where is the justice? How are they going to learn? And God says, just wait. Verse 33, while the meat was yet between their teeth, love that line, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people. And the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatava, because they were buried with the people who had the craving. From Kibroth Hatava, the people journeyed to Hazaroth, and they remained at Hazaroth. That line, verse 33, while the meat was yet between their teeth. It's so vivid. I think of like Gollum eating the, the fish in Lord of the Rings, right? He's just got it between his teeth while he's enjoying the meat. God brings a plague. It reminds me of Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and Daniel 4. Similar line, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar is going, is this not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven and he actually got sent away and ate, it says, the scripture says he ate grass like cattle, he was like a cow. While he was boasting, while he was saying those things, God humbled him. And that's what happens here. While they were eating the meat, while the meat was between their teeth, God sweeps in with a plague. It says it's a very great plague. It's, it's unknown. Um, my guess and many people's guess is that it was food poisoning. Um, it makes sense. They're eating meat, right? So this plague killed some of them. It says, verse 34, the people who had the craving were the ones who were killed. People who had the craving. Remember, those were the people from Egypt that joined them who didn't quite get it. So rightfully, and rather ironically, the people that instigated the complaining about not having meat actually end up dying probably because of the meat with food poisoning. God graciously punishes Israel. You don't hear those words together a lot. Gracious punishment. How is it gracious for God to kill some of them? Well, let me give you a few reasons. One, sin is a capital offense. We just went through the book of Romans. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. 
Death is what every one of us deserve because of our sin. Sin is, is way more serious than we treat it often. Secondly, God was patient and slow to anger. He should have punished them earlier. People should have died earlier if the wages of sin is death. All of them should have, including Moses at this point, should have been dead already. It's a gracious punishment because God graciously and mercifully waited until now. Thirdly, God God only killed the ones who had the craving, even though they all grumbled and complained. They all should have been killed. But God was faithful to his promise to Moses, or sorry, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to Moses. He preserved his, his grumbling people to fulfill his promises. One of our elders described numbers, and I would describe the Old Testament as a countdown where God keeps adding on the minutes. So it's like the other day, I said to my kids, okay, you're laying down for an hour, and I don't care if you fall asleep, but you just have to be quiet and in your bed. And every time you get out of bed, the hour starts over again. Okay, so it's up to them how long they're going to be in their bed. I'll just keep adding on minutes. And it seems like that's what's happening in Numbers. And we see this as a pattern throughout the Old Testament. He wants to give them this promised land. But instead, they rebel. They, they complain. They grumble. So God just adds on the time. All right, you're going to be wandering in the desert. It's going to take you way more than two weeks. And he just keeps adding time. Okay, you guys are choosing this. It's like the Bible Project said earlier. While God remains faithful to his people and his promises, he will honor their choices and let them waste their whole lives if they choose to live in rebellion. He'll let them waste their whole lives if they choose to live in rebellion. Reminds me of Romans 1 where he just gave them over to their sinful cravings. It's exactly what's happening here. God was more than gracious with them, but they chose to live in rebellion, so there was consequences. So the question for us is, why aren't we killed for our sin today? Well, guess what? You will be if you don't believe in Jesus. But Romans 6.23 doesn't end with the wages of sin is death. It continues, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If we repent of our sin, if we turn away from our sin and turn to Jesus, we will be saved from death, from eternal death, and be given eternal life. If we repent and believe, we are guaranteed life. Apart from Jesus, we're all as good as dead. We're bound for hell. But if we repent and turn and believe in him, it says right here, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So two major takeaways from Numbers 1 through 11. One, God is way more gracious than you thought. God is way more gracious than you thought. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Often, sometimes we get this thinking that's wrong in our heads that God was harsh and unkind in the Old Testament, but is loving and gracious in the New Testament. Wrong. He's the same gracious, holy God in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. Just look at the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Okay, I'll let you, uh, that's in Acts. You can check that out later. But he's the same. 
He gives and he gives and he gives, even in the face of complaining and rebellion. He, he's faithful even the, in the face of great unfaithfulness. He is patient even in the face of great impatience. We see that all throughout the Bible and we see this all throughout our own stories and our own lives. God is way more gracious than we thought. But second major takeaway is this. Sin is way more serious than you thought. One of our elders said, as we were talking about it this week, that there should be a thousand exclamation points behind that statement. Sin is way more serious than you thought. Let sin's seriousness move you to regular repentance of your sin. One of my professors in seminary, Owen Strand, said we should treat sin less like a buddy we shouldn't hang out with and way more like a direct enemy of ours. Too often, we, we, we just treat it as, oh yeah, that's that friend. I, got, I just can't hang out with them anymore. I better stay away. Oh, but I want to hang, I, you know, there's, oh, let's, let's just hang out. No, we need to treat them as a direct enemy of ours. We're not going to be perfect, but we become more sin conscious. We become more remorseful. See, with, with my kids, with my son Ian or Brandon or my daughter Joy, every time that they disobey me, every time that, that they talk back to me or steal or, or do whatever or disobedient to me, I am always going to forgive them. They are never going to cease to be my children. Always going to forgive them. But guess what? It still hurts my heart every time they disobey me. It's my prayer that it would hurt my children's heart as well when they disobey. So we need to do the same with our Heavenly Father. Do we even acknowledge our sin when we hurt the Father's heart with it? Have we become so callous to sin that we go, yeah, I'm forgiven, it's all taken care of at the cross? I mean, that's true, but have you forgotten what sent Jesus to that cross? It was my sin. It was your sin. David in Psalm 51.4 says, against you and you only have I sinned. If I would have heard David pray that and I was Bathsheba, whom he committed adultery with, or if I was Uriah, who, he, who was Bathsheba's husband, who he had killed, I would have been like, what are you talking about? You sinned against me. But David understood sin well. He understood that first and foremost, it's against God himself. Against you and you only have I sinned. Is that your attitude even when you sin against other people? That first and foremost, it's a sin against a holy God. Do you regularly, daily at least, repent of your sin? When we do this, it actually produces the opposite of what we might think. It actually produces greater intimacy with your heavenly dad. There is cleared when my kids come to me and are like, Dad, I'm so sorry I did that. That actually produces greater intimacy and closeness. It also keeps you desperate for a savior. If we, if we just walk around and never repent and confess our sin to God, we're acting like we have it all together. Like we have no sin in our lives and that's just false. Why would we ever need a Savior if we just live like we don't have any sin? So, as the worship team comes on up, 
I just want to take a few minutes to confess and repent of our sin together. I'm convinced of something. I'm convinced that physical actions help lead our hearts. It's why often in worship, I'll put my hands up, even when I'm not feeling it. Why? Because I want to feel it. I want to be remorseful for my sin, but often I just have to make myself confess and repent for my heart to follow along, for my emotions to follow along with it. So here's what I want us to do. I want to do some physical actions today. So we're going to have some time where we're confessing and repenting of our sin in our own minds and hearts with the Lord. And so I want you to bow your heads and I want you to put your hands on your head. You're going to feel a little silly. It's okay. We're all doing it together. All right? And I just want you right now to confess any impure thoughts you've had in the past week or so. Any impure motives, lies that you've been believing that you know are not of God. Any bitterness you're harboring in your mind, confess that to God right now. Now move your hands down near, near your eyes. Confess to God any, any media that you've consumed and watched that you know wasn't honoring to God. People that you saw that you know you shouldn't have. People that you ignored. Confess that to the Lord. Things that you've seen you should have or things that you should have seen that you didn't. Now let's move to our ears. Confess to God people that you chose to listen to that you knew you shouldn't have listened to. Confess to God godly advice that you got from his word or from other people that you just straight up ignored. What did you hear or choose not to hear this week that was not honoring to him? Move to our mouth. Confess to God any unkind words you've said to others. Things that you didn't say to others that you should have. Any hurtful jokes, hurtful sarcasm. Confess that to the Lord. Now put your hands on your legs. Let's confess to God things that we did this week that weren't honoring, things that we didn't do, places we went, places we didn't go, self-consumed actions that didn't give a rip about God or others. Confess those to him.
Now let's just put your hands out like you're receiving a present and receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ for those very sins you just confessed because 1 John says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Jesus, for cleansing us from our sin. Thank you that we can stand here completely forgiven. We praise you, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen. All right, let's stand and worship.